How did Roman Catholic views of Mary develop? What do they actually teach about her? This week on Theology Unplugged, we discuss Mariology in the Catholic Church. Mary. Is that it? That's it. Mary. Mary. Tim? Yes. Mariology? Is that what it's called? That's what it's called. That's what Roman Catholicism, the study of Mary. All right. Well, Some Protestants refer to it as Mariolatry. Mariolatry. That's yeah. right. pejorative term. Are you a Mariolatrist? Absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> Are you a Mariol... Uh, no, what's just an admirer of Mary? Yeah, uh, Christian. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Hey, we're going to be talking about Mary today, guys. That's it. You guys know that. Let's uh, let's dive right in, and uh, we're continuing our study on Roman Catholicism. And this topic, I think, for me, guys, is I guess I guess the way that I would start it off is say I understand a lot of things about Roman Catholicism in the sense of empathy, right? Empathize and understand why authorities there. I understand why they might accept the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanonical works. Even to some degree, like we talked about, understand purgatory. Now, this one is a little bit weird for me, and hopefully I'll gain a little bit of understanding from you guys, because I, I do want to understand, and I do want to empathize, even if I do end up disagreeing with the the understanding of Roman Catholics on this issue. But this one's kind of the one that's out there that's like, oh, that Mary stuff. Do I have to accept the Mary stuff? The the Mariology of Roman Catholicism. And I I see this as the one, at least in my mind, and maybe you guys can argue for Roman Catholics and help me understand it, that is the furthest away from any type of revelation that I see either in the Bible or in church history. Now, I see a little bit in church history, but it is something that grows and grows and grows. And I think I, I think Roman Catholics, with Mariology more than anything else, have painted themselves in a significant corner trying to defend themselves. Well, I was struck by the language of the Catechism, where repeatedly the, the Roman Catholic Catechism of 1995 admits in at least two or three places uh, with phrases like, the church came to see over time, or over time the church grew to believe that. And so they're, they're very explicit in explaining how this doctrine evolved. Well, and it's because of their view of authority, because uh, a lot of the the thinking on Mary, even though we have signs that your regular church person viewed certain things, what we always what we have to keep in mind is that it doesn't so much so much matter what people in the pew believe. It really matters what are the official teachings of the church, because those are what are supposed to, over time, be acquired by the people and believed by the people. And much of what we're going to talk about didn't become official teaching of the church until 1854, uh, some of them, and then 1950. A lot of what we're going to talk about that a Protestant would—it would sound very bizarre for a Protestant. A lot of those didn't become official teaching until the 1950s, which led in 1995 the Catechism to say, well, these things have developed, you know. But it's because they're believing that God— uh, communicated to his representative on earth uh, teachings. They wouldn't call them new teachings, but they just say developed teachings of of Mary. Okay, well, let's talk about the Marian dogmas, okay? Mm -hmm. And let's define these first. Which would be the official teachings when you say dogmas, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, doctrine, doctrine is just something that's kind of generally held. Dogma is something that's officially held and can't go back on. Now, let's talk about what, what are the dogmas. Sam, do you, do you have the... 
I do. I've got a few of them. Okay, let's let's uh, kind of give us an overview of them. And I guess the best thing to do would be to stop and pause and talk about each one individually for a while. Probably the best way to do would be to look at them in terms of their historical development. The first one um, of significance would be the one in 1854, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. And it's probably important to tell our listeners that uh, my guess is that some of them have driven by a church and it says the, the Church of the Immaculate Conception. And they thought that was a reference to the virgin birth of Jesus yeah. or his conception. Uh-huh. And then you understand it's not. It's a reference to Mary's alleged conception in the womb of her mother in such a way that she was free from the taint of original sin. And that was uh, made official Roman Catholic doctrine in 1854. Um, and it involves several things. It's the idea that she was preserved from any taint of original sin. In other words, the hereditary depravity of human nature Um For example, Psalm 51, in sin, my mother conceived me. I was brought forth in iniquity, David says. The Catholic Church argues that this does not apply to Mary. And therefore, the the consequent doctrine that flows from that is the notion that she lived throughout her earthly life sinless, Mm -hmm. sin-free. And uh, the argument that um, Catholics put forth, you you say, well, where is this in the Bible? And the answer is nowhere. But the argument they put forward is basically twofold. They say, number one, In order for a human being to carry the sinless son of God, nine months, Mary pregnant with with Jesus, she had to be free from the influence of sin. There couldn't be sin in her system, so to speak, whether spiritually or physiologically. And then secondly, they make this argument, which is a, a very pathetically poor one, in my opinion, and that is that she had to be sinless. Otherwise, we can't account for this incredible act of submissive faith when Gabriel appeared and told her she was going to uh, conceive and bear the Messiah. And they say for that kind of heroic, courageous, humble, momentous uh, act of obedience and submission to the will of God, she had to be free of sin. Of course, my immediate response is no. Any Christian can, in an act of obedience, in dependence upon the power of the Holy Spirit, can submit to God's will mm-hmm. and courageously do something that otherwise might seem out of the ordinary. So, But that's the first doctrine, is the concept of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Yeah, which officially, 1854, by uh, Pope Pius IX, uh, interestingly, though, uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, w- one thing that we see is that this is an official teaching. So we'd say, oh, well, this was first kind of thought of by by people around that time. Uh, but Thomas Aquinas actually wrote on this topic. And this was 600 years before this. And so it seems like Aquinas is aware that this thought is happening inside of the church. And it's a rightful, I think, uh, theological consideration as how can a sinful woman give birth to a sinless man? And uh, and so, but Aquinas actually disagreed with this teaching, which is kind of a big deal because Thomas Aquinas is a big deal to Roman Catholics. So for and a big deal for Protestants too, hopefully. But for Aquinas to totally disagree with this based on Luke 1, because in Luke 1, uh, 46 through 47, Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. So if Mary refers to Jesus as her Savior, then it would seem like she needs sin, that there's sin in her life that needs to be saved. So how could Mary be sinless if Jesus is her Savior? And, Let me and push that, pause that on was you. Can I push pause argument. on you for a moment? Yeah, pause me, bro. Because I, I do want to back up and give our listeners a little bit broader understanding of what it is that we're going to be talking about generally, and then 
start dealing with them each individually, and I okay. think we've dug deep here. But I think there are three official Marian dogmas. Yeah. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. The Assumption of Mary. Right? Well, the next one we would probably talk about would be the concept of her perpetual virginity. Okay. And then the third one would be uh, her bodily assumption into heaven. Those, okay. those are the three primary issues. But And then you've got kind of side issues, the theotokos uh, yep. of Mary, and, you know, just kind of these other things that are almost peripheral, but still well, yeah, and her, elevation of Mary. And her role uh, as an, um, almost as an intermediary with the son. Co-redemptrix. Yeah, to, to get to Jesus, you got to go through his mother, yep. that doctrine. Yeah. So there are a lot of tangential doctrines that have developed and practices. The, you know, the Ave Maria praying to Mary, asking for blessings to come from her. Uh, but those three, immaculate conception, perpetual virginity, and bodily assumption are the three we probably really need to, to hone in on. Okay. And we'll get back to the mm-hmm. immaculate conception in just a moment. But why, why Mary? What's going on here? What, why? I mean, from you guys' perspective, why do you think that this is necessary to to have been brought up in the church why do you think that the church saw the the natural development of the elevation of this woman to such a degree that we're having this discussion right now as i said before i can i can tell you about all the others it makes sense but why this it's just so out there to me yeah i'm hoping for good answers to that question as well from you guys because i've been asking myself that now for a couple days and all i can come up with is that this is a culture of mediation it's a culture of mediation, and it's a culture of elevating humans to unbiblical levels of authority. So in a sense, the Petri dish is ripe to grow this kind of false doctrine, but that's about all I can come up with. There is a historical factor, um, and Tim could probably fill us in on, uh, since he's done all the top theologians in the history of the church, on Irenaeus. Irenaeus, one of the most famous and influential of the early church fathers, who developed a, uh, a concept of the atonement called the recapitulation theory, which in essence argued that the way in which we are saved is that Jesus in his life, uh, life, death, and resurrection, that he recapitulated or in a sense inverted the process of corruption and death that was begun by Adam. So everything that Adam did that brought death and corruption, Christ reversed where Adam disobeyed, Christ obeyed, and so on. And in the process of developing this theory, Irenaeus said, not only did Christ reverse the process of corruption instituted by Adam or inaugurated by Adam, but Mary reversed the process that was begun by Eve. And the argument was he drew this incredible parallel between the two. And he said, Eve obviously... um, he argues, Eve being a virgin prior to the fall, although that, that's an interesting theory. Did they have sex before the fall? Um, Eve uh, being a virgin through her disobedience um, contributed to the introduction of sin into the world. Mary, through her perfect obedience, helps invert that process and brings righteousness into the world. And so there was from the very beginning what this late second century for Irenaeus um, he introduced this notion of the centrality of Mary in redemption alongside of the centrality and the more foundational reality of Christ in redemption. So that contributed to the 
gradual elevation of Mary as a contributor to the whole issue of redemption and forgiveness and the restoration of the image of God and man. Irenaeus said, being obedient, she became the cause of salvation for herself and for the whole human race. And the catechism quotes some of the church fathers as saying the knot of Eve's disobedience was untied by Mary's obedience, and therefore death through Eve, life through Mary. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the one of the things that we can't forget though is that Irenaeus is battling Gnosticism, mm-hmm. which is trying to make a case that 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 everything of the flesh is bad. And so I think Irenaeus, one of the things he's doing, I think, is that he is trying to show that this is a fleshly thing, that Jesus came in the flesh, and that basically our bodies are resurrected. And so he is fighting. He is not just speaking about uh, theoretically. You know, he's trying to. Basically basically make a case that uh, without going into Gnosticism too much, he's fighting against that. But I do think, uh, having grown up in a Roman Catholic church, uh, I think on the ground, one of the reasons I think that people really venerate Mary, and uh, and I think all of us will agree, we need to lift high Mary. I mean, Mary, compared to Zechariah, when Gabriel speaks to Zechariah and the priest doesn't believe God, but the little girl does believe God, I mean, that's an amazing thing. But I do think a lot of Roman Catholics it would be almost like like basketball season is big right now. And in Oklahoma City, the Thunder, they're the talk of the town. Kevin Durant is our hero. We all love Kevin Durant. But imagine if you knew Kevin Durant's mother, okay, and you wanted to pass a message along to Kevin Durant. Would you, in such a busy time of the NBA playoffs, would you send text messages to Kevin Durant or made it, may you feel more comfortable communicating to his mother and allowing his mother to be able to, to you know, be able to be the one that communicates to her son? And I think that a lot of Roman Catholics just identify with Mary. You know, she's fully human like well, we are. Well, don't say Roman Catholics. Just say us. I mean, how does okay. the we, I, I mean, because... They're not a special brand, different kind of brain or something like that. No, yeah, I, I agree. But I, I think, though, one of the reasons that Roman Catholics— In uh, history. Let's go back in, in history. In history, as, as opposed to Protestants, have uh, have had people pray to Mary, have, have people you know ask Mary to intercede for them, is almost—I think this level of comfort of that— it's sometimes easier to talk to just a motherly figure and to to have a motherly figure understand what you're going through as opposed to going straight to a man. <laughs> and, and I'm not making a man-woman thing, but more just like, hey, he's the savior of the world. Yes, I'm worshiping the savior of the world, but I feel comfortable communicating to his mother to then communicate to the savior. Well, that, I understand that, that but I, I don't get it. I understand it, but well, I don't get well, it. Well, it gets back to a little bit of what J.J. was saying, that inherent within the Roman Catholic system is is this notion of mediation mm-hmm. and, um, you know, the, the notion of the immediacy of grace that we have instant, unfettered access to God himself through Jesus Christ has not been um, something celebrated within Rome, in Roman Catholic tradition. Mm-hmm. It's like, you no, know, God has said, I'm going to deposit redemptive saving grace in sacramental actions and these are then dispensed to the faithful through the actions of a of an ordained priest, and thus everything is mediated. And Mary plays a role in that. She she is inserted into that uh, access to God, access to her Son, and for the some of the reasons that you've just suggested. Uh, let me fast forward two hundred years in history from where you guys were at with Irenaeus and see where I believe, at least in my readings, where Mary becomes much more prominent and suddenly. It's just this elevation escalates quite a bit. 
and that is uh, the Theotokos controversy. Mm-hmm. And, and really, I, I think that this is very interesting because I, I don't think it originally had anything to do with Mary. It had everything to do with Jesus and who was Jesus. And you had people uh, such as Nestorius or Nestorians, probably not Nestorius himself, but Nestorians who were communicating this idea that uh, that we, we don't want Mary to be the mother of God because it implies something about Christ. Theotokos, mother of God. That was introduced into creedal formulas gradually. Mary is Theotokos, the mother of God. And people were raising their hands saying, no, wait a minute. If you say that she's Theotokos, mother of God, then you're implying the birth of God. And we don't want anything to do with that. And so people started introducing, how about let's call her, call her Christotokos, the, the mother of Christ, or Anthropotokos, the mother of man. And then people paused on the other side again and said, no, we're scared now that we're going to take away from his divinity because mm-hmm. he was divine from conception. And so there was a big fight for Mary to become Theotokos, not for the sake of Mary, but for the sake of the divinity of Christ. However, it seems to me, this is the way that I read it in history and see the escalation, is due to this the, this focus and this, the, this uh, insistence on Mary being the- Theotokos and then getting introduced into the creed of the day, you know, the Chalcedonian creed, uh, this is the standard belief now. From now on, you call Mary the mother of God. And that became a term of adoration. That became a term to where I think that's whenever she began to separate from the the rest of humanity. Or in fairness to them, they would technically say a term of veneration. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if this is opening up a can of worms. I have no problem in referring to Mary as Theotokos. Yeah, no. Um, what? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it literally means God-bearer. Yeah. Because the fact is, Luke 1, that which shall be conceived in you shall be called the Son of God, the Holy One. So Mary did bear the God-man. The, inco- the, the, the union of divine and human natures in the one person of the Messiah took place at the moment of conception in Mary's womb by the miracle of the, of the, virgin, of the virginal conception. So she did bear the God-man. Now, maybe it's important that we say that she gave birth to the God-man, not that she was, as you said, the origin or the ultimate and efficient cause of the existence of God. That's what Protestants will immediately shy away from. But when you think about it, there's nothing heretical about referring to her as Theotokos, and it is an immense blessing. Mm-hmm. I mean, think of all the women in the world and the, the, the maternal instinct who would not have rejoiced in being selected by God to be the one to, who gives birth to the Messiah. It is a highly privileged position, and so you can almost see why people would begin to gravitate toward elevating her ever more. Said, well, she's, she's different from us. She's of a, a, a separate category because she was selected so highly favored. Yeah, I like how, though, Michael, I do like the focus. I love using the term theotokos, but in a way that's showing Jesus. And, and, and the way I like to think of it is that when Mary was, was in the labor and delivery cave, <laughs> when she was giving birth to Jesus, that that bloody body that was passing through the birth canal was the God that made her. You know, and so she's not making God, but the God that made her is passing through her birth canal. And the, that that is the theotokos. 
A little yeah. bit too descriptive. Yeah, that was a little, little, little graphic. Well, <laughs> let me ask I mean, you a question. Got, he got really passionate where he was bloody yeah. in his hands. You well, didn't see it, but his hands were like, <laughs> like he was giving birth. Let, the time. let me ask this question. We, we, we introduced the Immaculate Conception, the first of these doctrines. Um, why do we not believe it to be true? What is it? Is there something inherently objectionable to the notion of the Immaculate Conception and her her sinless life? Uh, how, why do Protestants reject it? Well, can can I hold on that because I want to use that. <laughs> he just that doesn't want to talk. About it. No, no, no. I want I want to smoothly close this one out and then move into the next one and cover each okay. one of those those issues. Okay. And if we begin to defend it one way, well, or I've already unless... embraced the Autocost. I'm thinking about embracing Immaculate Conception here. I want to. Are you embracing the baby that passes through? I I, I, I I muted your I, mic. I, I, I want to continue just for a moment to trace the history of it. Okay, okay. JJ, you you had something that you wanted to jump in and yeah i'm just thoughtful as as we consider all of her attributes as they are described by the roman catholic church it's hard not to hear the voice of the author of hebrews ringing in your mind as he continues to say jesus is preeminent he's a better priest he's a better mediator and all the attributes being given to mary have a spooky thing in common that they're all things that only jesus does and so it's almost as though they're constructing a second jesus when she's described as the mediator even her ascension where it's described as the first fruits of the resurrection. Well, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, but for the Roman Catholic Catechism, Mary's ascension is the first fruits of all Christians' resurrection. Uh, she's a mediatrix, but of course in Hebrews, Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. So it's fascinating to see how each of her attributes so perfectly maps onto Christ's singular work and makes it no longer singular. Well, and welcome to the Reformation. I mean, that's why sola Christus or solus Christus, I mean, is that Christ alone is the one that is doing these things. Um, and, and that's why I, mean, I think you know, to realize the Reformers all came out of Roman Catholicism. And uh, now a lot of these things were an official dogma at the time, but obviously there was, a, there, were, there was a direction of thought and movement towards Jesus not being the only Savior. Well, during the Middle Ages, you do have this uh, elevation. Uh, what was the term we used just a second ago? Veneration. Veneration. And, and it seems to grow and grow to the point where, uh, as I'm reading throughout through history, I become more and more uncomfortable during the Middle Ages, later Middle Ages, with the, with the language that is used. Beforehand, it's not that big of a deal, taking it out of the context of what we're talking about up here. But in the Reformation, you even have, I mean... Martin Luther embraces at least one of the Marian dogmas, which was the perpetual virginity. So did Calvin. Calvin. and So, so did Zwingli. It, it's not necessarily a Protestant thing to have to reject these things, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's something that at the Reformation, we didn't get rid of Mary, right? Right. Is that it? I thought it was pause. That was a long pause. Well, every time I look at JJ, we got the, these, these new, what are those called? Microphones? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, the foam things. Oh, yeah. Kelsey, what are these called? Pop filters. Pop filters. I'm really getting dizzy because he's like in a matrix because he's <laughs> surrounded by these things. So I can't look at him. I just got to look at him in the corner of the eye. Okay, so then we've got finally these, these doctrines, which were generally held, the, these three doctrines, slowly become dogmas. Now, we've only got a moment here, but I want to try to figure out what in the world happened there. What's uh, what's the difference between a doctrine and a dogma, and why did it change at the time that it changed? Anybody got any insight there? Well, the difference between doctrine and dogma, dogma is that which finally is uh, declared to be official Roman Catholic um, principles or truths based on either a papal decree 
or a council. For example, it was the Council of Trent in the middle of the 16th century that affirmed the perpetual virginity of Mary as an official dogma or bodily assumption. Uh, what was that, in uh, 1950? Uh, something rather recently, yeah, just yeah. About, you know, less than 75 years ago, is when that was officially made dogma. And then, uh, then the other one was just before that too, right? Or the Immaculate Conception, yeah, yeah, 1854. Yeah. So two of them officially became dogma within the last couple of hundred years. Why, though? I mean, what, what do y'all, is it because of, because it was supposed to be, remember we talked about this beforehand, the church steps in whenever there's controversy. The church only has to bring in dogma whenever it has to bring it in because there's division in the church and we're settling a matter. It's kind of odd, isn't it, that Mary gets so much attention and the dogmas to the degree that some people even say the only times the popes have spoken infallibly is with regard to these dogmas. I don't know of any unique, particular, historical, cultural circumstances that provoked these being elevated to dogma. I think most Roman Catholics would say, you guys are making a mountain out of a molehill. The fact is, these were embraced by the rank and file of Roman Catholic theologians and the, and the people in the Catholic Church for centuries, and it just was the Holy Spirit in his sovereign timing who moved upon a particular pope or a particular council to elevate these to official dogma. But I, I, maybe there is something that I'm not aware of. Maybe those who know Roman Catholic history better would say, no, there were unique arguments, debates, issues that were swirling that called for this official declaration at this particular time. I'm just not aware of them. Well, well and, and no, no, we're done. Okay, we're done. Okay. Uh, we're going <laughs> to continue next time, and we're going to talk about each one of these individually. You can, you can carry on with what you were going to say, but I want to talk about each one of these dogmas individually. We've traced the history, so... We thank you guys for joining us and join us next week as we continue to talk about Mary. Theology Unplugged is presented by the Credo House. For more information on the Credo House, visit www.credohouse.org.